So a friend of mine tells me recently about how he was walking down a busy street in the centre of London on the phone to his mum. Important detail is he is obviously in London, busy street, middle of the day, lots going on. He's speaking to his mum, who is one of those people who live out of London. So you've got in London, this is how he told the story, it's not my joke, in London, and then you've got other people who live somewhere out of London. He is on the phone to his mum out of London, and as the conversation is going along, she keeps interrupting and saying, what's going on? To which he doesn't really know what she's referring to, so he just keeps chatting. Very anxiously, she starts to say again, what's going on? What's happening? Still not sure. What's going on? Why all the sirens? He hadn't even noticed the blazing sirens in the background. But that was all she could focus on, these sirens that were going on in the background. For him, living in London, that was just part of normal London life. And he said, have you ever gotten used to the sirens? You just live with them and you perhaps are comfortable with them. It happens wherever our environment is after a while. We just, we just get used to certain things happening and being there. Comfortable with the sirens. I use that little story as a way into tonight's topic because it is possible to get comfortable and used to certain things in our lives as Christians or to get comfortable in the Christian life. And as Christians, it is possible to become comfortable that with things in our lives that don't really fit with the Christian life and the teachings of the Bible. James calls this double-minded Christianity. He is talking about people who are trying to live as Christians and as non-Christians at the same time. They are living in a double-minded way. Now, it's good just to introduce that at the start. If you're here and you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, then tonight you're going to be helped, if you follow along in the verses, to understand something about the God of the Bible, what He is like, what He loves and what He hates, and what He, he looks for in the lives of His people. If you would call yourself a Christian, then Tonight's passage may be right bang on the money for you at this stage in life. I don't know what we're all going through. Or it may be something that will serve well, either with another Christian friend or with ourselves sometime in the future. To that end, I want to pray now. Will you join me as I lead us in a short prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, please that you would unsettle us tonight where we are wrongly comfortable, where there is sin, show us our sin, but also show us our Savior. And help us to receive the grace that you give 
the grace that you offer so that we might be changed and turned from being double-minded Christians to being devoted to you as you are to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This section, chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, it's where James has really been heading towards in the whole letter, this topic. Um, what he wants to do is destroy false Christianity amongst his readers. And, and he wants, in the place of that, for um, authentic Christianity to be built. So to destroy double-minded Christianity and in its place to rebuild authentic Christianity. In the, in the previous verses, he's just called his readers to live in a new way, according to God's wisdom. But he says now to them uh, that their fights and quarrels that are evident within the church, that they reveal double-mindedness. They, they show the fruit of what is actually happening in their hearts. They are trying to live uh, the Christian life and the non-Christian life at the same time. We've got three headings here on the sheets to do with double-minded Christianity, the cause, the dangerous reality, and the cure. We're going to look, first of all, in verses 1 to 3 at the cause of double-minded Christianity. James starts with this question in verse 1. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And then James goes on to give the answer, but it's not the usual answer that I would give, which is it's somebody else's fault, or I'm tired, or it's been a busy week, or some other excuse. James says, second half of verse 1, here's his answer, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? James wants to highlight that the real cause of being double-minded in our Christianity is a battle within. And he adds to this in verses 2 and 3, he says, you want something but you don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James is trying to highlight what is going on inside with these Christians. And he's trying to show that what is going on eventually comes out. And the effect, well, the language really gets across his concern. The language is so dramatic. He says, you're literally killing each other and you're killing the church because of your behavior. And this all stems, it seems, from the desires that battle within, or we might say from unfulfilled desires. Because in verses two and three, he highlights things that they want but they cannot get. Things that they ask for but they don't receive. Unfulfilled desires. We're not told exactly what they're desiring. 
in some senses, that's helpful because it leaves the application quite open for us tonight. But it could be from other hints in the letter. It could be to do with some of them being rich and some of them being poor. So there is a desire for material things. It could be to do with positions in the church. He's just said that you shouldn't uh, presume to be teachers. It could be, if we take the covet language in these verses, to do with sex or status and relationships. Wanting these things, but not having these things. And of course, the thing to do in this situation when facing a battle like this is to pray, but obviously we know ourselves that is easier said than done. They, it seems, are failing to pray on one hand or praying wrongly with wrong motives on the other hand. And what's happening is when you put all this together, instead of being a people who are trusting God and caring for each other, they are being motivated by greed and selfishness and envy. And this section started so innocently. What causes fights and quarrels? It sounds like tiffs. What causes little tiffs and arguments amongst you. And James really piles in and says, this is what is going on at a deeper level because he is so concerned. You could say it's to do with the haves and the have-nots, the things we want to have, the things we have not. I heard the story of uh, an American pastor who had been working very, very hard to the point of neglecting his family, and he had eventually got the message from the family that he needed to spend more time with them. So on this Saturday, he loaded up one of those big wagons or whatever they are. All the kids are in there, and they headed off to a big theme park early in the morning, first in the queue, in they go, wife, himself, and all the children. And uh, just as they're going in at the start, they're all wanting to go in different directions to get on all the different uh, rides, but the littlest is tugging on him because she sees somebody selling fancy balloons and she wants a balloon and of course that is just going to stop everything that everybody else wants to happen so he says look we'll get one at the end of the day let's go and, and off they go and they do everything. Fills the day, gets back into the car at the end, counts all the family in and his wife, sit down and he's feeling quite pleased with himself. That was a full day. He's really done the right thing. They're pulling away, and from the back seat, the little voice goes, I didn't get a balloon. And he turns round and lets rip. And his wife gently puts her hand on his arm and says, dear, 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 and he lets rip at her as well. And he tells that story, and he says, actually about his child. Maybe it should have been more about himself. He says, that's just like little children. They focus on what they don't have and forget everything that they have or have enjoyed. He says, that's just like little children. And then he goes on and says, but that's just like grown-up children as well. And it's just like Christians as well. It is so easy to focus 
on what we don't have and forget all that we do have. And that is something of what is going on amongst uh, the readers that James is writing to. And this is causing huge problems in the church and in their relationship with God. If James stopped here and didn't go on, it would be terrible, but he is desperate to get these Christians back on track. And so the second heading is the dangerous reality of double-minded Christianity. The dangerous reality of double-minded Christianity. And we're in verses four to five. And notice the change of tone. It's not just a change of tone. This is a change of tone for the whole letter where he has been referring to them as brothers and sisters and speaking lovingly. And now he refers to them, verse four, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? What's going on in the church really matters to God. He wants these Christians to understand how serious it is. You adulterous people. They have failed to understand that a relationship with God is like a marriage relationship. It's to be exclusive. They're trying to be Christians with all the blessings that goes with that life, as well as having a bit of the world on the side. And doing this James wants them to know is impossible. You can't do both. I want to try and illustrate it with the help of this little office chair. What he's saying is you are trying to live like this, facing that way and that way at the same time. Facing the world and facing God. And you can't, sorry Mary, you can't do it. You don't have Tom, Tom does a reference to God. <laughs> right. So he's saying you can't. You're trying to do this. You can only face one way at the one time. And you're trying to do both. So he goes on and says, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Friendship with the world is hatred towards God. You see, James wants them to know that God is like a husband, rightly jealous for the love of his wife, the devotion of his wife. God is rightly jealous for the love of his people. And with this language, James is just very blunt. He's saying your hearts are wrongly divided. You see, when other things come in and occupy our focus, like idols that 
take up our time and our energy and our devotion, when that happens, when we give them our love, this is hatred towards God, and it will choke our spiritual life as Christians. And the danger is that because we can all tend to be like this, we don't see the big deal. But spiritual adultery troubles God and it ought to trouble his people. If we just shrug and say, well, that's just sort of the way I am, we need to know that that God is not shrugging his shoulders when our hearts are divided like this. He is only, as we read at the start, satisfied with an exclusive relationship. And if we're rightly understanding this tonight, then the impossible application, if you like, the complete opposite of what we're meant to get from this and do is to continue trying to live like this at the one time. We must not go away from this passage and think that remaining in that state of the affairs is okay. That is the complete opposite application of what James wants for his readers. We're going to move towards what he does want his readers to do. And this is our last heading, the cure to double-minded Christianity, verses 6 to 10. You see, if we rightly understand how much spiritual adultery troubles God, then we'll want to know, is there a solution? Is there a way forward? And James tells us the wonderful news in verses 6 to 10, that there is a cure. There is a way forward. It's why James has not written these people off already. Look at verse 6. He says, but God gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That word grace is a Bible word explaining God's special kindness to the undeserving. He helps those who come humbly to him. There is more grace for people like this. Practically, what will this look like? Well, it will be taking time out to work through these verses. The cure, if you like, is unashamed and unrestrained repentance, that that word which means turning around and changing. But instead of just saying repent, James is wonderfully pastoral and gentle by giving us lots of descriptions in these verses to help us move forward. He gives 10 commands, and in between, he puts promise after promise from God. It's absolutely brilliant to have these verses to finish on. At the heart of this, verse 7, he's calling the Christians to submit to God, come back to him, and that will require resisting the devil 
We can't continue to be friends with the world. And part of that means resisting the devil with the promise that when we fight, he will flee. The encouragement to come near to God and he will come near to you, verse 8. Draw near to God, and the promise is that he will draw near to you. He will not remain aloof and distant like an enemy. He will meet you. It's the message of the gospel that we must continue to preach to one another, to ourselves. God gives grace and welcomes the sinner. Our sin is not the end of our Christian life. It does not have the final word because of Jesus dying and rising. It's the message of the gospel. James says, wash your hands, purify your hearts. It's a, this change is, is an external and an internal thing. It's putting off and stopping certain behaviors, but it's also changing in the inside and seeking God's grace for that to happen so that we're growing in wholehearted love instead of being half-hearted, being single-minded instead of double-minded. And then verse 9 he says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. You see, the things that wrongly made us laugh, that wrongly brought joy, they should make us mourn. It's describing genuine grief and shame at how far we've potentially drifted from God. Part of true repentance is feeling sorry about our sin, but it's also being grieved by our sin. You see, there's just a danger that when we're so familiar with the message of the cross and grace and forgiveness, that we sin and then know that there's grace and we just do a sort of what a friend calls a sin shrug and move on. There is sin but there's grace. James is saying it should go deeper than that. Sorrow for our sin, be grieved by our sin, ask God to work that in us. We've got to go there, but we won't have to stay there. As verse 10 wonderfully says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is great, great news for double-minded Christians. Double-minded Christianity, James says, is serious, but it needn't be the end of your, Christian, your Christian lives. If we come back to him in humility, see how the passage ends? With the promise. He will lift you up. 
Let's pray. Father, if you are the creator of everything, and if we believe that is so, then everything that we have has come from you, and we owe you everything. We ask, please, that you would indeed give us more grace tonight to walk humbly with you, to humble ourselves before you, and to turn back to you with renewed love and devotion. For our good and for your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.